Welcome to a sermon from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Today we draw our series on the kingdom of God to a close. However, I should say that it's not the last you're going to hear from me on the kingdom of God. In fact, I will be drawing the kingdom of God into every sermon always because it has been everything that Jesus spoke about from the time he started his ministry in Galilee to the time he was taken up into heaven. It's all he ever talked about. So that's all I'm going to be ever talking about as well. And I hope it's everything you talk about because his kingdom is your kingdom, right? It's our kingdom together. His kingdom come, his will be done in you and in this earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer always, isn't it? That's how we live. In February, we focused on the evolving theme of this kingdom of God from the Old Testament, in the Old Testament from Genesis to King David. In March, we looked at the inauguration of the kingdom of God as seen in the Gospels, in the life and the ministry of Jesus, the Christ. And as we saw that, we saw him start his ministry by saying this in Luke chapter 4, verse 43. He said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. Think about the weight of that statement. That is why I was sent. Jesus came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. In the business vernacular, that's that good news. This is Jesus' mission statement, right? His vision statement. And from it, we can discern his values and his goals, and we do. And in many other parts of the Gospels, he calls us, he commands us, and he commissions us to join him in his mission to do the works he did to spread the gospel message throughout the nations of this earth. And notice that his kingdom, this kingdom of God, has good news to it. In fact, it is good news, isn't it? And you and I are familiar with good news, aren't we, as, as Christians? At least with regard to our faith. Because there's not a lot of good news as you look around the world today. With wars and rumors of wars and famines and pandemics and inflation and pressure to cancel your Disney Plus subscription. I mean, wherever you look, there is... Whoever thought we'd have to cancel Disney, hey? But we, the citizens of his kingdom, are familiar with the good news of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. He rose from the grave so that you and I could gain eternal life in him. That's good news, isn't it? Amen? But that's not the extent of the good news. We know that the death and resurrection of Jesus guarantees us also a spot in heaven. That's good news too. But did you know that that's not the end of the good news of the kingdom of God either? The really good news is that the king is coming back soon, right? Amen? Come Lord Jesus. And when he does, something really good is going to happen. Judgment day will happen. You're going, ooh, Pastor Mike, when you mention judgment day, that doesn't sound very good. That's a bit insensitive even, really, when you think about Judgment Day. That's not good news, is it? Well, it depends on how you look at it. For sure, much of the apocalyptic literature in the Bible has some very graphic and destructive descriptions of the day of the Lord or the return of Christ to it. 
In Isaiah, let me just walk you through a few from the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, verse 9, it says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Joel 2, verses 1 to 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in the times, ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His his forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys his commands. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Then we move into the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Verses 1 to 11. Now brothers and sisters. About times and dates. uh, We do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that the day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together with him. So yeah, there are some harsh realities to the day of the Lord. And by the way, the day of the Lord is the second coming of Jesus. And when he comes, as you saw in these scriptures, and there's many more, so does God's judgment. You would hope, you would hope, that the warning of divine judgment would be enough to turn the sinner to claim Christ as Lord, wouldn't you? That was the reason John even wrote uh, the book of Revelation. If you flip to the book of Revelation here this morning, in chapter 1, verse 3, John says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. The time is near. In other words, get ready, for judgment day. But sometimes the threat of judgment actually drives people away from God. Have you ever had that experience? Have you ever seen that? People don't like the idea of someone judging them, not even God. I know people personally who reject the lordship of Jesus because they don't believe that even God should be able to judge them as unworthy of heaven. So angrily they turn away even more from, from God because They so desperately want to save themselves, but they're not willing to turn to the only one who can save them. If only they could understand that it is for the very reason of escaping God's wrath that anyone would want to turn to Jesus. 
So the question is, why is there a divine judgment coming at the end of the age when Christ returns? Let's just say at the outset that it is part of God's plan to once and for all complete the reign of his kingdom here on earth. And like it or not, argue with it all you want, a final judgment day is part of that plan. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, let's pick it up in verse 7. I'm reading verses 7 to 10 just to kind of give us context to verse 11 and following. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is after the millennium, after the devil and the beast and and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Pick it up in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, that is Jesus. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The dead in Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now it's important to remember, we've warned about this in the past, but The genre of Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 to 15, all of Revelation, in fact, is a vision that John had had. His repeated use of I saw in verse 1 and then verse 11 and in many places in the book earlier clarifies that John is seeing images like as in a vision. Revelation 1 verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and companion... In the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are, that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of place he was in. I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll which you see and send it to the seven churches. So friends, this is not a documentary so much as it is apocalyptic literature and therefore, for the most part, it's not meant to be taken literally or chronologically. I caution us about that a couple of sermons ago. Unfortunately, though, many Bible readers and even some pastors may make that mistake. But pastor, aren't we supposed to take the Bible literally? No, not always. It depends on the genre and the context of the part of Scripture that you're reading. 
If you are intent on taking it literalistically and chronologically, then one thing that you have to figure out is how come some of the book of Revelation has the same event happening multiple places, like, for instance... Uh, the battles of Armageddon. There's two battles of Armageddon in the book of Revelation. One in Revelation 19 and also in chapter 20. Now, this made no sense to me when I was reading it, trying to figure it out, trying to put the, the timeline together until I read Gregory Peel's commentary on Revelation. And he says this, The battle of Gog and Magog against the saints points to the likelihood that, that chapter 20, verses 8 to 10, is a recapitulation, in other words, a, a rehashing or a restating of the battle narrative that is in 19 verses 17 to 21, which also alludes to the battle in, uh, in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. So appreciating that, it's, a, it's impossible to gain a definitive timeline from the book of Revelation. And that's why pastors and scholars can't agree on one. There are so many of them. Revelation is filled with figures of speech and allegory and simile and visions and events that run concurrent with each other and sometimes randomly throughout the book. So insisting on a literal approach or a chronological approach to reading Revelation will read you into error. So what can we learn from Revelation then? This is what you can learn from an apocalyptic book like Revelation from God. That God has promised to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And in the end, God wins. God wins, hands down. And then he will make all things new. That's what we can learn from Revelation. And in order to bring that kingdom to completion, to establish his rule, the rule of his throne once and for all, it's part of God's plan to include a final battle against the enemies of his rule, and to hold a final judgment day in order that his kingdom rule becomes the rule everywhere. That's what we can learn from Revelation. Because right now, his rule is not everywhere, is it? But a day is coming when it will be. He will ensure that it will be by his own power. With that, verses 11 and 12 opens with a royal courtroom scene. Revelation 20, verse 11 and 12 then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, that is Jesus. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. So picture this. Jesus is seated on a great white throne and then everything in all of creation takes a back seat and he comes up front and center in all his glory, to judge the world. All of a sudden, all the earth's dead are there. And this is everybody. This isn't just believers, and this isn't just unbelievers. It's everybody. How do I know that? John says, he describes the dead as the great and the small. That's inclusive language that's used elsewhere in the Bible to describe all peoples, everyone. And John says that there were some among them present who were in the book of life, that is, believers, people who profess Christ as Savior and Lord. And some of them were not in the book of life. Those were the unbelievers, those who rejected Christ and his kingship. And Jesus starts going through the books. Some have tried to suggest that there are two judgments 
in the Bible. There is the great white throne judgment, which is for unbelievers. And then there's another judgment called the Bema seat, or the judgment seat of Christ, which, is this, which some believe happened earlier than this scene. There is only one Bible reference for this proposal, and that's found in 2 Corinthians 5.10, which says, For we must all... I would emphasize the word all, appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for all the things done. Sounds like the, the, the great white throne judgment, doesn't it? Whether good or bad. But you know what? There's no need to believe that this is a separate judgment from the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is the judgment seat of Christ. Because both great and small, believers and unbelievers, will be there and will be judged at this time. Understand that this is another place where sometimes Christians tend to base their theology on fear. Now, I don't care when you think the rapture will happen or if it will happen. That doesn't matter to me. But don't believe in the rapture pre-trib just because you're afraid to go through the tribulation. See, I hear it often when talking to people about end times things. Oh, pastor... I, don't, I, don't, I can't believe a good God would allow his people to go through tribulation. Christians seem to need to orient their theology sometimes based on fear rather than on scripture. Based on the fear of having the prospect of going through tribulation and judgment. Listen, there are scads of places in our Bible, both Old and New Testament, where the elect are warned that they will be judged. Their works will be judged. And similarly, that they will face tribulation. Jesus himself said in John 15, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So listen carefully. Persecution and tribulation are not the same thing as God's wrath. Yeah, do you hear that? Persecution and tribulation are not the same thing as God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1. You have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from his coming wrath. We can experience tribulation. We can experience persecution, but we will not be under God's wrath. That's the difference. Similarly, there's judgment and then there's judgment. Let me explain it this way. Let me take a sip of water first. All this hot weather we're experiencing really is getting me parched. <laughs> Picture it this way. At the great white throne, judgment. The life experience of every human being will be read out loud from one of those books that Jesus possesses. Every sin, even as Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, that even every stray thought will be brought into the light one day. And then there are the works, both good and and bad works. All of those are recorded in some of those books that Jesus holds. And we will all be judged based on our works. Romans 2, 5 to 6. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done. But then, after considering what he has recorded in those books, Jesus will open the book of life. And if your name is written in the book of life, you will be given the final judgment of forgiven because of your faith in the blood of Christ and his resurrection. When Jesus comes again, 
He will have the marks in his own crucified, resurrected body that will prove that your penalty for sin has been paid in full. And our Lord assures us by his own words. In John chapter 5, verse 24, he says, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. The final judgment for the Christian is forgiven because of our faith in Jesus Christ. If, however, your name is not written in the book of life, then the final verdict is unforgiven. And your own guilt of sin and that of denying the blood and resurrection of Jesus will condemn you. So there is no need for the believer to fear the great white throne judgment or the judgment seat of Christ. Same thing. Because Christ's judgment on the believer comes with the verdict of life eternal, forgiven forever. While the judgment on unbelievers is a different verdict, one they should fear. It's a verdict unto what the Bible calls the second death or the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verses 14 to 15, then, the de- then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, while as a believer, we don't need to fear judgment from God, but we still need to be respectful of it, don't we? How you live now both in moral quality and the works you do in his name are going to be judged one day. And don't you want to be able to honor the Lord with your works and with your character by the way you live now? Of course you do. But fear judgment? No. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. But if you reject Christ... And the Bible is very clear. Revelation 20, verse 15, anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. What's the lake of fire? John describes it as the second death. The lake of fire is also known as the lake of burning sulfur. It describes a number, it's described a number of times in the Old and New Testament. Four times John uses the phrase second death here in the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them, that is the nations on the earth, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had already been thrown. Read the chapter before. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You hear the conditions? Revelation 20, 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, verses 5 to 8. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost. From the spring of the water of life, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, 
the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery, fire, fire, fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is a second death. Think of it this way. In a world of systemic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, jealousy, persecution, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are justly and powerfully put in their place and that there might come a day when the poor and the oppressed and the forgotten are rescued, well, would that not be the best news there could ever be for those who are in that situation? Absolutely. Well, that is the good news of the kingdom of God. That is what Jesus talked about since he started his ministry in Galilee. That is the good news that Jesus died for and rose for and ascended for. That is the good news that he commissioned us to proclaim to all the nations in his absence. That is the good news that he's coming back for. That is the good news that he will one day be judge over all creation for. And once he declares his final judgment, this is the good news that will encompass all. The world wants good, and they want a good God. They plead to God to be good, for, to, be good to them. But friends, a good God must also be a just God, right? He cannot let the wicked go unpunished, or he would not be just, and therefore he would not be good. And a good and just God would have to be the God of judgment in order for all those evils that we pray to be removed from this world can be done away with. Does that make sense? So just so you don't leave this morning, this morning's word, believing that the central framing question of revelation, in fact, of all the Bible, is, is where one person goes after they die, whether to heaven or to hell, that is not the point of Scripture. That's not the framing question of Scripture or of our Christian hope. For far too long, we Christians have made salvation about deciding between two destinations. And that's a shame. Because God's salvation is so much more about recreation and also redemption and reestablishing the Eden that humanity lost at the beginning. Remember how we started this series. God's salvation and his kingdom was about God creating for himself a divine family. He begins with Adam and Eve and then he grants to them as his imagers the eternal status of partners in a worldwide dominion over all the earth. Not just humanity. Over all the earth. They were stewards of the planet as well as of one another. Romans chapter 8 verse 18 to 24 Sort of halfway through the, the eons, from creation to revelation, halfway through we have Paul saying this, I consider that our present, present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation itself waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself 
will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God, the family of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our full adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For this is the hope. For in this hope we were saved. That's the hope of the gospel, friends. The creation waits for the salvation of God. God's people wait for the full salvation of God. Salvation isn't just about final destinations, heaven and hell. It's about creation's liberation. It's all about the glorious hope fulfilled that, fu- that freedom and full redemption will come to all that God has created. See, once Jesus' judgment has, has, has done away with all the evils and even death itself, Then he promises a new creation maintained by his own universally good rule and a new dwelling place for his new family. Revelation 21 verses 1 to 5. This is just a glimpse. I encourage you to read the rest of 21 later. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was now no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Just one or two. Here's the thing. Since the days of creation, God has promised to establish his kingdom on earth. It's what he taught his disciples to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's his goal. And in order to bring that kingdom to completion, to establish the rule of his throne once and for all, it is part of God's plan to include a final battle against the enemies of that rule and to hold a final judgment day in order that his kingdom rule becomes the rule everywhere. And that is how God plans to make everything new and with that judgment complete then there will be no more tears no more death no more mourning no more crying no more pain because the old order of things is gone hallelujah and after the great white throne judgment john tells us what he saw he says in 21 verse 4 for the old order of things has passed away if genesis 3 all the way back at the beginning, tells the story of paradise lost and how Yahweh had to lock his own family out of Eden. Revelation 22 tells us about paradise restored. Heaven on earth is the glorious consummation of God's original kingdom design for the Garden of Eden, and that's why its future is filled with trees of life and a river running through it. 
what Christians have traditionally referred to as spending eternity in heaven, is actually eternal life on a new earth where God on his throne takes his place among his people forever. You and I will not be spending our eternity in some celestial heaven disembodied as like ghosts and spirits. We will be in our full resurrection bodies. We will enjoy God's presence on this earth as it was meant to be enjoyed from the beginning. And your keys to that kingdom, my friends, on that new earth is to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. So the question before us today, in case you thought the message was pointless, this is our one point. Friend, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Thanks for that musical interlude. I think as the book ends, there's a call. After everything is said and done, we read at the very end of the book, Come, Lord Jesus. Let us make that our prayer today. So if you have not yet come to the place where you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, again, it's not going to be determined by your works. It'll be determined by the grace of God in Christ through his death and resurrection. Your your works matter. They will be judged. But ultimately, you need to be in the Lamb's book of life. And if you've never done that before, if you've never asked Jesus into your life before in that way and and have not made him king, then like at the end of the book of Revelation, just say, come Lord Jesus. If you have made that decision and you know your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that you will escape the wrath of God at the judgment, then you can say, come Lord Jesus and pray for the speed of his return and get involved in the works of God so that we may get the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is our mission with Christ. Let's pray. Father, We do say thank you for this word. As strong as it is, as ominous as it may have been, we know that you are Lord. We know that at the end of the age, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, when it comes to that day, they will recognize his lordship. But Lord, today you've been nudging some people, maybe in in this room, maybe online who are watching, and you're saying, I want to come into your life today. You're saying to them, I want to be your king. I'm not an oppressive king, I'm a good king. And I will lead you to life, not to death. And if you feel him nudging you today to make Christ king, then just say, come Lord Jesus, be my king. Be my savior, be my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. I accept the death and resurrection of Jesus as my vindication. And I will follow you all the days of my life. And for the rest of us, Lord, and now for those who prayed that, Lord, we, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come to this world that is wrecked with unrighteousness, ungodliness, and evil. 
It has perpetuated itself through the eons, and even the powers of darkness have monopolized, monop, mon, have gotten on it and have said, we're going to make havoc of this world. And we see that all around us every day. We have to live in that. But we pray, come Lord Jesus, rescue this world from its burden so that it may receive its inheritance in the kingdom of light. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. We belong to you. We will declare that always and to everyone. In your name we pray. Amen. You can find out more information about Lawson Heights Alliance Church and our ministries by visiting lawsonchurch.com. 